Hello, and welcome to the Sawyer Seminar Bites podcast, hosted by the Boston University Center on Forced Displacement. This podcast showcases talks hosted by our Sawyer Seminar series on border regimes, a grant generously funded by the Mellon Foundation. In this episode, we will listen to a talk given by Kaya Shelda, an assistant professor of political science at the Boston University Pardee School of Global Studies. It is a pleasure to have this conversation with some of my favorite people and to have the excuse to welcome Nick. Um, but I'm Kaya Shilda, and um, when I was asked to talk about this, um, I, I kind of uh, was a little bit um, overwhelmed because this, this whole financing of or political economy of migration um, and borders is a huge part of my research agenda in terms of um, a lot of what I've written and thought about over the last decade has something to do with this aspect. And when I say political economy of migration management or border security, what do we mean by that? I do not mean the economics of migration and border security, because there's a big difference between economics and political economy, right? Economics, that that field that has really good methods and some pretty bad ideas underlying them, um, is the field that basically um, all of its models um, predict and expect equilibrium. So everything is retrofitted in economics to understand like a supply demand curve. And when things do not happen in that way, it means that something's gone wrong. Well, political economy um, is the study about all the things that go wrong in how non-equilibrium outcomes happen. So when I say the political economy of something, I mean, why did that equilibrium outcome not happen? Why did the optimal thing not happen? And so when you say a political economy of something, you're actually saying what material interests and institutions interfered in this outcome? What material interests or institutions put their thumb on the scale and changed outcomes? What material interests or institutions benefited from were winners and losers in that outcome or anticipated being a loser or tried to be a winner in that outcome? And so a classic political economy of explanation that we're very familiar with, familiar with is like a military industrial uh, uh, um, complex kind of outcome or analysis that says, why does the US government spend X on the military or why does it have this kind of military policy? And you can say, because these political interest groups had these material interests and they wanted to be winners in that outcome and that's why that outcome happened. Now, an economics of outcome would completely miss that because they would miss the actual political lobbying and kind of interest intermediation that happens in this process. So a political economy of kind of analysis looks for the interests and the institutions that have material interests in an outcome and understands outcomes by elevating them and looking for them and it's a lens. More specifically, in my research agenda or in some of the work I've done, and I'm going to try to give a snapshot, snapshot of that a little bit. I'm going to talk about my 2017 book because it's, it, it addresses some of these issues in the European Union. I'm going to talk about a couple papers I've written, a couple things that are in progress. I'm going to talk about my current book. And so I'm going to try to go a little bit fast, but also not skip over too much. What do I mean by a political economy of EU migration and borders? So a political economy lens helps us understand why the EU has a defense policy. I'm not going to linger on this too much because it's not the topic of our talk today. But in my 2017 book, I considered a puzzle that the European Union, a trade civilian organization, has a defense policy and defense institutions, right? 
Um, it's somewhat puzzling and it can't totally be explained by security or threat phenomenon or other security kinds of things. And one of the explanations, and I'm giving very simplistic versions of this right now, is that one of the reasons the EU has a defense policy is because defense firms in Europe wanted to have a bigger European market and a single European buyer eventually, or a single European regulator of defense. And so they lobbied for 20 years to try to create that. So then another question that my research addresses that gets more to the topic of our talk today is why does the EU have border and internal security policy or migration management policy? And a, and a conventional wisdom of this might be, oh, because it started experiencing migration crises, right? It started experiencing functional pressures in migration. It had to address it. Um, well, I have an alternate explanation for that. And that is that because defense firms were already active and lobbying for the EU to have defense policies and institutions, from like a capitalist sense, they wanted to expand their markets. And so they, so they saw a market opportunity in security markets. Now, what, how is security different from defense? Defense is external about wars and, you know, and, and military expeditions and things like that. Security is internal about civilian uh, population management, border security, and migration management. That's what security means. And so um, the, the interest groups, they're already mobilized to say, we want the EU to buy defense equipment, mobilized then further and said, hey, Let's get EU institutions like Frontex to also buy equipment. Um, and so one of the explanations in my research is that one of the reasons we have securitized migration policy in the EU, one of the reasons we have deadly border outcomes is not just because of more ideational things like racism or uh, you know, neo-colonial uh, boundaries or things like that. It's also because of material interests that actually the EU buys surveillance packages from firms because of decisions that were made 30 years ago, okay? And then did not then invest in a counterfactual kind of search and rescue kind of border patrol or anything like that. Um, my more recent work asks why states, not just the EU, but also the EU and European states, outsource migration management or detention to private firms. So my previous work was about how firms increase state authority or EU authority, my current work is about why states then give that authority away to firms, like a revolving door of authority. And one of the current explanations, it is not actually a fiscal explanation or a finances-based explanation, but it's a political accountability-based explanation, is that states, including the EU, but also European states, are essentially avoiding risk, either legal risk or political risk, because uh, thing, when things like migration management or in particular detention, which I'm studying right now, get too political or start to incur too great of legal or political costs, then they get outsourced, okay? And I'm gonna go into that a little bit. And then also what kinds of markets over security and migration management have been created at the EU level. The EU is the top three spenders of security, research and procurement in Europe. Um, and so it's a major procurement market and firms know it and firms have shaped their incentive structures around that. And actors like Frontex are now decision makers and a political economy lens about which firms win or lose, who gets contracts, right? And so this is something I've explored too. All right, 
Um, and so the the kind of the first my first contribution to this talk comes from my 2017 book, where basically I show that these defense interest groups mo initially mobilized. When I say mobilized, I mean they opened up offices in Brussels. They created you know lobbying strategies. They started to spend major amounts of money on government relations to initially lobby for the creation of EU defense authority, meaning that they were saying, hey, the EU should buy defense equipment, that you should make rules at the European level. We don't want there to be these little European markets in defense anymore. We want that there be a single European market in defense. And so then this, this early mobilization helps us explain a lot of things. It explains the timing of why EU defense policy happened. It explains the acceler acceleration of it. It also explains why there's been a lot of progress in market cooperation and defense, but not so much progress. When I say progress, I don't mean like normative progress. I mean like institutional development in actual um, military or strategic cooperation. There's no EU army, right? But there's a ton of EU institutions to help regulate or consolidate defense markets. And then for the purpose of this talk, this also influenced the migration policy that the border security became securitized because of the defense industry lobbying. The defense industries are the only ones at the table setting the EU migration agenda. So this is parallel to arguments about securitization in political science, international relations, there's something called the securitization agenda or the securitization frame. And that kind of literature explains why things get securitized, but their mechanism is rhetorical, that things get securitized because of speech acts. My work shows that things get uh, securitized because of interests in institutions that have material interests. Okay. All right. So my current book is kind of, I already know how to write my promotion file for full professor because I know how to say like, my first book did this, my second book did this. <laughs> so my first book is about how firms influence states over security. My second book is about how states give that authority away to firms. And so it's taking as a very, very big philosophical picture, why do states take any of these public goods over security? And I take a very broad Weberian sense of what I mean by security. I don't just mean armies. I mean the secure, the, the authority to, um, uh, to um, what is it, the Weberian, uh, to exercise legitimate- uh, Monopoly on state Monopoly over state violence, thank you. And so it, I include then um, prisons, migration detention, border migration management, and things like defense management in that larger in that larger thing. And so there, I have it over there. This idea of Bayberry stateness. Um, and so this this legitimate control of violence, states have been giving it away. Things like contract management over defense, these like administrative authorities over that public good of security and defense. So my book asks, asks which state functions have been transferred to market actors? Why and under what conditions do states intentionally give away these core security functions? And then when these functions get outsourced, does this constrain state power or does it expand it? Okay, so those are the larger philosophical questions. And um, I, an argument, a proto-argument in the book, the book is like half done, but a proto-argument is that it's not, this, this phenomenon is not happening at the level of states, it's happening at the level of bureaucracies. It's happening because bureaucracies um, have become or are less tolerant to their previous 20th century roles of absorbing risk, essentially. And that risk can be societal, it can be political, or it can be financial or fiscal. 
Um, and they have, um, and these, these bureaucracies have outsourced to the private sector in order to manage that risk. It is a really, really simple argument, but it's a very powerful argument. And it also has, I can, I can be pleased to report a ton of empirical evidence, a little bit of which I'll show you. Importantly, this outsourcing has primarily not occurred for ideological reasons. We, there's kind of a conventional wisdom that's not 100% untrue, but it is a little bit too fairy tale esque that, you know, states had state functions and then Thatcherism and Reaganism and neoliberalism came down the pipeline. And then uh, pro program managers and bureaucrats started outsourcing things because they ideologically believed in the markets. There's a little bit of that, but there's not that much because a lot of these actors who are doing the outsourcing are not ideological, okay? There are some of them who do hold these beliefs and some bureaucrats who do hold the beliefs that the market's more efficient than states, but most public policy studies that program managers and bureaucrats are very well, well aware of, and my evidence, my research shows, is that most actors are aware that outsourcing increases costs. So they're operating under those, those um, assumptions usually. So only the most deepest ideologues actually believe this. <laughs> and they're de de definitely a minority amongst uh, bureaucrats. Okay, so my book empirics um, are in these various areas. And um, I have found a lot of empirical evidence uh, that essentially outsourcing as measured by the number of government contracts is often preceded by an increase in perceived threats to that bureaucracy. Now, threats can be different. They can be political. They can be like accountability demands, like requests from parliaments or Congress for more information. Uh, you know, this is perceived as a threat to a bureaucracy. Now, remember, I think that threats to bureaucracies make bureaucrats say, hey, let's dump this stuff over here. Let's give this to a firm. Let's get this off our books for a little while. Um, public transparency requests like FOIA requests have also, um, in my work, I've shown that they precede things. Um, another person's work looked at, um, it's very, very similar to my work, looks at why there are private prisons in the United States. And she found that the creation of private prisons at the state level is preceded by an increase in prisoner rights lawsuits. So it's the exact same argument as my book, you know, another piece of empirical evidence. Um, something I'm going to show you from the um, European cases are that these outsourcing is often also preceded by legal threats or perceived legal threats to the organization, meaning either lawsuit challenges or things like decisions coming down from higher courts that tell a bureaucracy, no, you're being bad right now. So how do bureaucracies respond? They often outsource the policies to outside actors. So the research I've done in the last um, uh, few years um, and the research that Carrie was saying is new here, and I'm going I'm to cut the last part of my, my, my talk, just going to present this, it's enough to chew on, um, is about why migration detention has been outsourced in Europe at, your, at the European state level. Um, it is a phenomenon um, that has been going on, at least in the UK, for many decades, but in continental Europe, it has been about the last 15 to 18 years, okay? and so. Uh, the, the existing explanations for this have been, the conventional wisdom is that states do this because of fiscal constraints, because of capacity pressures, that the, either the bureaucracies are low capacity in general or not high enough capacity to absorb crises like migration crises or demands on their asylum system. Um, and 
I have not found that to be the case in any of these European cases, cases of outsourcing. In general, there is some kind of alternate explanation with more evidence about accountability evasion. And so um, the case that I was researching more closely, there is state-based, um, you know, of course, I'm not going to get into the details right now, but there are many different kinds of reception centers or welcoming centers or detention centers at different stages of the migration process that are different or the, the asylum process that are different and different uh, in different countries. And I can answer questions about that, but I'm not going to incorporate that into my talk right now. I'm showing you this because a significant portion of these are run by private actors. Now, there's some of them are entirely run by private actors and some of them are partially run by private actors. I'm not so interested in the ones that have outsourced like food or, or or janitorial services to private actors. To me, that also, it's not just my opinion, but most states have considered those non-essential government functions. States have laws about what essential government functions are, and those don't count. When you start to get into healthcare of, of asylum seekers, that's where things get blurry. Um, but then when you get into the entire management of the center or the security of the center, that's where states are often violating their own constitutional laws about what a core governmental function are. And that does happen. It's widespread. Entire centers are privatized. Uh, um, these are just part of our research. Uh, that is looking at what the different providers are. There's JEPSA, a French company. It's a major so when I say there's a French company, I don't just mean they're, they're active in France. They're active across Europe. These are multinational companies. Um, there's ORS, headquartered in Switzerland. It's active in seven different European countries. Um, and most of these are actually, it's also very interesting in terms of the finances of this, which I'm not even going to get into. But they're, um, most of these are owned by private equity firms in terms of their incentive structure as well. Um, and so that's an interesting fact when it comes to quality of care and the replacement of government services with private services, that the, that the care has been uh, degraded in all these cases with the management from private equity because of the sole focus on profit rather than any kind of public good. Um, it just got, um, ORS just got um, uh, purchased by a company called um, Serco, which is a British, British firm. Um, they are present globally in, um, in Australian markets as well. Um, and so the case that I, deep dove, that I did a deep dive into um, with um, uh, a former undergraduate from BU and also a former colleague from CFD, Isabella Trombetta, um, worked with me as a team on the Italian case. But we looked into the Italian case. The Italian case is interesting because it's really recent. It's also because they only started uh, outsourcing in the last decade, later than other European cases. It's also interesting because the outsourcing of public goods in a very um, uh, um, particular way, violates the Italian constitution. The Italian constitution is designed to try to preserve public goods from private capture in very exceptionalist ways because of like, you know, organized crime and things like that. There's reasons for it. However, outsourcing of these public goods has happened. It started in um, public management like healthcare services, mental health services, but also this prison management and uh, detention center management. Um, outsourcing started with nonprofit actors in the 1990s, but they were only actors like Red Cross and nonprofit providers. That's the red is the nonprofit, sorry, the red is the um, Red Cross, the green is the nonprofit. You can see that starting in 2013, uh, the Red Cross drops away entirely. The Red Cross is not a service provider anymore in Italy. And the yellow 
um, is private sector providers. And those are running entire detention centers. Sorry, I got confused by my own graph at the beginning. Um, where this is coming from is that um, we have a supply-based reason for this. It's that um, firms are getting chased out of countries like Austria very, very publicly, but also Switzerland and Germ Switzerland because of public scandals of mismanagement, human rights problems, but also runaway costs. The firms are moving those countries to Italy increasingly to in order to recoup their profits. And that's what this shows too. The point is, is that the tipping point in Italian privatization of migration management or migration detention, not complete privatization, not all places are run by private sector actors, but the tipping point of any uh, places being run by private sector actors was a top-down decision from the European Court of Justice that said Italy is out of line with European law on migration detention. That directive started in 2008, and then in 2011, there was an EU um, Court of Justice decision against Italy. So at that point in time, Italy was out of line legally, and their response was to outsource. For more information on the Sawyer Seminar series on border regimes and for upcoming events, go check out the Sawyer Seminar website, linked in the description. This Sawyer Seminar series is made possible with funding support from the Mellon Foundation. This podcast is produced by Boston University's Center on Forced Displacement in collaboration with all members of the team.